Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Thank you all for coming. Uh, let's start with the uh, serenity prayer. God, grant me serenity to accept things change. Very strange the things I can. I know this one can know the difference. Yeah. Actually, this is a, the sort of occasion where I need the more of the uh, third step prayer of uh, God. I offer myself in this situation to you to do with as you wish. And if you want to make the, have me make an ass of myself, this is your opportunity. Uh, the uh, the topic uh, for this workshop is yeah, you can't make me angry. But the rest of the title, you, you can't make me angry without my consent. And uh, it's a takeoff from uh, Eleanor Roosevelt having said, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. Uh, that nobody uh, has control over your emotions unless you give it to them. And uh, I... Uh, I didn't come to AA because I was an alcoholic. I, uh, I wasn't an alcoholic. Uh, I only came to AA because uh, uh, getting a pass to come to AA meetings was the only way I could get a pass uh, to get off the nut ward of the hospital I was on the staff of. It really wasn't all that funny. Uh, yeah, I was there by mistake. and. Uh, Anyway, I ended up in AA, and uh, I found out that that really made the uh, psychiatrist happy that I was going to AA meetings. So to make him even happier, I went every day so I could get the man to take me and uh, to get enough brownie points to get discharged from the hospital, which eventually happened. And I had no intentions of going back uh, because I wasn't an alcoholic. I did plan on lying to the psychiatrist and telling him how many meetings I was going to, and I told Max that uh, to confirm what I said, whatever I said to the psychiatrist. And uh, the problem, as I think I said before, was that Max liked the AA meetings. She would rather go to the meetings than to uh, sit at home and watch me drink. And uh, she even liked that better than going to the movie with me. And, uh, when I found out she liked that, I uh, used that uh, as a threat to uh, not go to AA anymore unless she behaved. And uh, that didn't make it better. It made it worse because she went off to the meetings by herself. And so I had to go to the meetings to find out what she was uh, going to meetings for and why people were, why she enjoyed them so much and what they were laughing about. And uh, I sat in AA meetings and... Uh, I talked to the men, at the, mainly at the men's stag meeting, and explained to them why I drank. That if they had my problems, if they had my patients, if they had my wife, <laughs> they would drink too. And I uh, spent seven months uh, trying to convince them that I didn't drink because I was an alcoholic. I drank because of my problems. People. The situations uh, drove me to drink. And after seven months, I came to the realization that there was absolutely nothing that I could go and tell the people in AA 
why I drank and they would say to me you're right you you have a right that's an, that's bad enough you have a, a right to drink and and they would pass the word around that he's really not an alcoholic he drinks because he has a real good reason and uh, and I, in other words they did not buy the fact that anybody uh, drove me to drink or any situation drove me to drink well now I've been sober a while I haven't had a drink since uh, July 31st 1967 and uh, but I find that people uh, People in particular really drive me nuts. Uh, people give me more trouble than anybody. And uh, Max has uh, shaped up a lot. But you know, uh, people, people who are married and divorced and married and divorced and married and divorced, and that's rough, that's painful. But, you know, staying steadily married to the same person for 58 years, that's no bed of roses either. I mean, <laughs> and, you know, I, I came in with the idea that people could control my emotions to the point where they could uh, make me drink. And I realized that the same thing is true today, that if I don't take care of my own emotional sobriety, there's always a risk that I will say, what's the use and take a drink? And I can't afford to let anybody control my physical sobriety. And if I don't want my physical sobriety to be at risk, then I can't afford to let people control my emotional sobriety. And um, besides, it feels good to feel good. And, uh, I just can't, I can't, I'm, I'm willing to go to any length, any length at all. I, I can't conceive of any length to which I am not willing to go to maintain my physical sobriety. And I am getting to where the point where I'm willing to go to practically the same length in order to maintain my emotional sobriety. So my, my emotional sobriety has become increasingly important to me uh, for practical re purposes, for practical reasons. Uh, I uh, read the other day, it was in uh, Language of the Heart, uh, the book of uh, things that Bill W. has written in the uh, grapevine, uh, that he still said that he had observed that a lot of the oldsters, was the word he used, but we refer to them as old-timers, were not, didn't have emotional sobriety all the time and that he thought that perhaps they would become the uh, spearhead <clears throat> for the new frontier in AA of emotional sobriety. I mean, we kid and laugh a lot about our own our emotions, and I always say I'm a sensitive alcoholic, and we talk about how sensitive we are and how emotional we are, but I, I think that uh, we... My point in this is I want to take a few minutes to be serious about our emotional sobriety because I think it's so important. And uh, I think that I need to I need to focus on that. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's not quite relevant, but I was surprised in medical school when I learned when they taught when they, they taught they said in teaching about psychoses they said that in mentally ill people 
do not think, not, their emotions are no different than ours, except to a matter of degree. They're qualitatively the same and only quantitatively different. And, and you know, and yet we allow people to control our emotions and thereby our thinking and how, how risky that can be. Uh, anyhow, the thing, one of the things along this line that, I, that has helped me a great deal was uh, Father Barney used to come down from uh, Seattle to our area and uh, put on retreats for Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, until he died, uh, <clears throat> I don't know what he's been doing since. But but he 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 likes to break sobriety down like in a like to a, like a baseball diamond. And he said that first base was the physical sobriety, second base was mental sobriety, third base was emotional sobriety, and home plate was spiritual sobriety. And I like that. I like breaking things down, just like I like breaking sobriety down into a day at a time. In fact, along that, I can visualize that diamond that the first uh, first step, we admit we are powerless over alcohol, comes right after physical sobriety. And the second step, came to believe that the power of greater self could restore us to sanity, is right at second base, mental sobriety. And I visualize the rest of the steps on the rest of that diamond. And we all are, and I visualize all of us as, in fact, I visualize Alanons as being right beyond the first base. Once you get the first base and move beyond that, you can't really, in a sense, distinguish between Alanons and, Al- and, and alcoholics because we're all striving for the same thing from there on. And, but anyhow, I see all of us on that diamond and always in motion. We're either moving further into spiritual sobriety or we're drifting back to where we came from. We can't stand still. We're getting, getting more spiritual so, spiritually sober or drifting back to where we came from. I like that concept. I like that. Because I was told early in sobriety, very early in sobriety, that I had a disease <clears throat> that was following me and would always be there. And there's no way for me to tell how far back it is other than to stand still and wait for it to catch me. And I don't want that to happen. So I keep moving. I like that concept. It keeps me moving. And uh, so that's, what the, that's the sense in which I, I try to work on uh, uh, the, uh, my spiritual sobriety, getting things moving forward in that. Uh, one of the most um, difficult things about the, uh, uh, my staying sober is I drift so easily into the victim role. I see the victim role so much uh, in my life, what people are doing to me, what situations are doing to me. And and in working with people, I find that uh, there's nothing that I can think of as a more useless role to be in than the victim role, where you're blaming other people. When a person's wallowing in self-pity, there's really nothing, you can't help them. I, I, I know a situation where I did help them. I had two guys. They were both in the victim role. They were both whining all the time, constantly talking about their problems. You couldn't get them out of that uh, situation. All they wanted to talk about was how bad it was and how bad their lives were. And it was just a real bore to listen to. You know what I did? I gave them each the other guy's phone number. (laughs) And, 
and you know, strangely enough, they both immediately recognized the other guy's problem. You know. <laughs> I never heard from him again since, and that's fine. You know. <laughs> The business of assigning blame is so uh, so much a part of my life that, and yet uh, I find that that uh, assigning blame is a completely useless uh, situation. I mean, if you're in a relationship and you're trying to figure out which one of you is to blame, you once you figure that out, you've got nothing. You've got nothing. It's much. I find it much more practical to figure out who's going to be the first to stop this. Who's going to be the first to say, let's call a halt to this and start over. Let's call a truce, or whatever it is. In fact, I had a case of that where uh, I was secretary of my home group, which was fine. It would have been fine, except some other guy had been secretary before I was, and he had done a much better job than I was doing which is, uh, would have been okay, except he would deliberately come in and do things that I hadn't quite done to show me and show the whole world what a jerky secretary I was. He was doing it deliberately to upset me. Uh, and, and he, and we ended up, we couldn't stand each other. Uh, for obvious reasons, because of what he was doing, it was his fault. Uh, and we ended up uh, at a uh, couple's retreat. And I, on Friday... Late afternoon, the people are all coming in. He and his spouse came in, and I thought, oh, he's here. Uh, I thought, I'm not going to spend the whole weekend with this guy and feel bad about it. So I said to him, I said, you know, you and I don't hit it off. Could we sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk? And we did, and we talked, and we got things straightened out. You know, I find the best thing I can do with the resentment is to talk to the person that I resent. And he did the same thing, and we got it all ironed out. Had a pleasant weekend. Sunday noon, it's time to break up and go home, and we're all saying goodbye to everybody. And he comes by, and I said goodbye to him. I said, I'm really glad we sat and had our talk and got these things straightened out. He said, yeah, so am I. But he says, damn it, you were the one that initiated it. Boy, did I feel good. You know, I, had, I finally I got the guy. You know, I was the one that initiated, initiated the recovery. And I pass that on. If you're having problems with somebody, be the one that can take the credit for getting the thing straightened out. It's that one last chance you have to really get them. And, uh, I'll never forget that one. The, uh, I, I've written down a, a few things that I have chosen to believe. And one of them is that I choose to believe that life is just is basically one long, long series of communication problems. In other words, I have relationships with people, places, things, items, situations, and my communications to, among, and about those relationships. So it's all just a, a, a communication problem. And which, is, by thinking that way, I have developed an interest in learning to communicate effectively and efficiently, more so than before. And I'm not good at it, but I'm sure a lot better than I used to be. 
because I used to keep it all in my head, and now uh, I've, I've been practicing it. And we were talking about that just a little while ago: how to communicate effectively, uh, assertively, not passively, not aggressively, but assertively. And I, that's that's been an interesting hobby of mine. Uh, secondly, a measure of communication is the result it produces. I read that someplace. Didn't mean much to me, so one day I went to a um, Saturday morning, afternoon seminar by Sister B. Wonderful gal, wonderful gal. Uh, it was on communication. That's why I went, and besides because it was Sister B. During the question and answer period, somebody asked the question, what is communication? And I thought, well, that's about the dumbest question I ever heard. Uh, but then I was surprised when Sister B couldn't really communicate, or couldn't define communication. And I was even more upset when she turned to me and said, Paul, how would you define that? And, <laughs> I couldn't really figure out how to define it, but I remembered the statement that a measure of communication is the result it produces. Now, I've, I've taken that as a challenge. If I'm not getting along in a, with a person in whatever situation, rather than blaming that person or trying to find out the cause of all this, I'm best off if I think I'm not communicating effectively. I accept the challenge of improving that situation by improving my communications with the person. Uh, and that's, uh, that has helped me a great deal. I, uh, I, 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 a measure of communication is a result it produces. And if, I'm not, if I don't like the result I'm getting, I'm not doing it well. I'm not communicating well. Oh, here's one you may not like. It may not even be true, but I choose to believe it. I choose to believe that people treat me the way I've taught them to treat me. If I don't like the way somebody's treating me, there's something I can do about it. There's something I should do about it, other than bitch about it. I need to change what I'm doing. If I, if I want somebody else to change, I've got to change first. People treat me the way I've taught them to treat me. And if I don't like the way I'm being treated, it's because I'm not acting the way I should be acting. And I, that to me, it's a real challenge, but I, I like that. And that's where I get to the fact that, that you can't make me angry without my consent. Because I am responsible for my emotional state. In fact, I even uh, wrote this out to Max. I, I wrote out a declaration of emotional independence and gave it to her. And what I said was that as of that date, she would no longer be the cause of my emotional state. From that day on, I could no longer say to her, you made me angry. I could say, what you did, I didn't like and I chose to get angry about it. But my anger was my choice. She can't make me angry. Nobody can make me angry. People can do things, and I can choose to be angry, but they can't make me angry any, me any more than they can make me happy. 
or make me anything else. It's, those are my choices. The, but the, the nice part about that, though, is that it works the other way. I don't make anybody else angry. I don't upset anybody else. If they get upset at what I do, that's their choice. Unless I deliberately try to upset somebody, but then that's something that only comes only I can decide that. Then, then I have to go back and make amends for that, and I don't like to make amends. That the, they're not my favorite thing to do. Uh, so uh, 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 I have my independence, and Max has hers, and it has worked out uh, uh, that way a great deal. Uh, and, and, the, and of course, emotional independence is the key to emotional sobriety. Uh, I know a couple that I work with that uh, this fella was raised by his mother more than by both parents. I don't even know where the father was, but he grew up, he trained his mother so that when she didn't act the way he wanted her to, he would pout to punish her for what she had done. And if she didn't notice that he was pouting, he'd have to pout louder. And he would make her feel miserable bad enough, long enough, that she would change her behavior so he would change his behavior. And he, be he trained her so well that he became very proficient at that. Now he's in a relationship with a, a woman, not his mother, <laughs> who is a recovering alcoholic who doesn't take crap from anybody. <laughs> he will do this stuff to pout and, and, and nag at her to where she gets upset and responds. And he, when, when she responds vigorously, he's even more free to, be, get, to get his passive aggressive stuff going. And he really needles her more until she does something really outlandish, it's physical, and so on. And then he says, did you see what she just did? Can, can you believe that anybody would act like that? Can, can you just look at this crazy woman? And then he's won. He's won. Trouble is, by winning, everybody loses on that. And, uh, but the point is that he manipulates people by making them feel responsible for how he feels, and she is manipulated and she accepts that responsibility and tries to fight back on it. They both allow, each allow the other one to control their emotions. The very thing I was trying to talk about, avoiding, uh, it has to be avoided. I mean, uh, you can't, you just can't live that way. Um, so that anyway, uh, I'm trying to think of things to, uh, that I've done to try to improve uh, this, and that's a hobby, the things I've read. Uh, are you familiar with uh, Harville Hendricks and his book? What does he write? Uh, uh, keeping the love you get and uh, getting all the love you want or something like that. Uh, as I recall Harville Hendricks, the main thing he does, he says that a couple have chosen each other for whatever reason they think they've chosen each other, they've chosen each other because of their inner, uh, their defects. That a person picks a partner to work out the problems left over from their childhood. Things having to do with the parents. And what he, what he teaches is that, this is a real tricky thing, for the 
the, the two people in the relationship to help each other to work out their individual problems without becoming part of the problems. So that they stay distant from it and that each one helps the other one to grow emotionally uh, without becoming uh, defensive and be, without becoming a part of the problem. It's a... Uh, uh, and they have this long series of things you do to uh, work through the um, whole book, the workbook in that. Uh, uh, Gary Spence, the attorney, uh, you've all heard of him, seen him on TV. Uh, he, uh, as I understand it, he's never lost a case. Uh, he's a tremendous defense attorney. Uh, he's written a book called uh, How to Argue and Win Every Time. What I got out of that book was one really basic element, and that was that you should never fear your opponent because your opponent only has as much power as you give them. If you're afraid of your opponent, you give them a lot of power, they're going to win, but it's up to you. They only have as much power over you as you give them. And... Uh, I find that a very important concept that they uh, you have control over that. Uh, another uh, book was uh, George Thompson. He wrote uh, Verbal Judo. I, I don't like the word judo because uh, 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 it sounds like <clears throat> martial arts and uh, warring, but I, I know judo is based on the idea of... Uh, of not resisting the other person, letting the letting the, the letting the, using their energy to defeat them, and that. But well, the point is that uh, uh, Thompson was a uh, policeman, and then a uh, prison guard, and then studied literature and, and wrote this book. And his his whole thing is he enjoys teaching people how to go into a difficult situations as policemen often do, and be a, a calming influence and not allowing other people to control you, where you control the situation, often with humor and with uh, handling it in an appropriate way. Uh, it's, it's a way of taking the uh, sting out of uh, difficult situations and calming them. And I found that very helpful. Um, oh, but one I really liked was John Gottman. John Gottman wrote uh, Why Marriages Succeed and Fail and How You Can Make Yours Last. And he has a lot of good stuff in there. But one of the things I really liked was he just distinguishes between a criticism and a complaint. Now he says that to complain to your partner about something you don't like is sensible and logic, logical because if you don't complain you keep storing the things up and then you dump them all on in anger and it's better to mention your complaint and get it out of the way the critical point though is to not criticize the criticism is a uh, or a character assassination uh, an example might be uh, I don't like that dress. That's a complaint. I complained about the dress. A, a criticism would be, you look fat. You, you really are, uh, have offended the other person. 
And uh, that, 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 is, that sets up the thing. I've seen many relationships that have difficulty because of that. Because the person actually goes too far and, and, and gets into the other person's character. And uh, they become very defensive and ready to fight, naturally, rather than just being a complaint. A major thing that we do, and uh, we do it all the time, we don't even realize it, and the psychologists, psychiatrists do it, called reframing. It's seeing a picture in a different frame. And uh, um, sponsors do it, and we do it with each other. And, uh, it's a, what happened with uh, Earl, uh, when he was standing the other night, he was going to walk out of the meeting, because he couldn't make it, he just couldn't make it. He was just giving up, he, he's gonna, he'd never make it, he was going to leave. He starts to walk out. And the sponsor goes to the microphone and yells, Earl, we're having a meeting. And they're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, we're having a meeting. And he turns around, goes back to the meeting and forgets that he's going to kill himself or whatever he was going to do. Uh, it, it, we, and even uh, cutting things down to a day at a time uh, is a, a different way of reframing. Or uh, uh, looking at alcoholism as a disease rather than as a bad habit. It's just changing the framing of it. It makes it worse. And we can do that with each other. So. Um, I think the most important thing, of course, and that's the thing I want to stress, is that I think prioritizing. We have to have a priority. I mean, I couldn't stay physically sober until being physically sober was the, the most important thing in my life. I, nothing was more important than my physical sobriety. I can't have my emotional sobriety unless it's right close to that. Uh, well, most of the things that I get upset with just aren't worth it. They're just not that important. How important is it? How important is it? How important is it compared to my sobriety? And most of the things just aren't that important. Uh, the, uh, oh, uh, another thing was this business of getting angry. So many of us are afraid to be angry because I guess it's because we're not sure what's going to happen if we get ang are angry. Uh, it's actually that there's nothing wrong with anger. It's what you do about the anger. It's the action that follows the anger that matters, not the anger itself. Anger is a natural emotion. And I like the concept of constructive anger. Most of the time, anger is uh, the action that follows anger is destructive. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because of habit or because of uh, emotional immaturity on our part. But... Uh, uh, Mothers against uh, drunk drivers uh, comes to mind. There are women that got angry, and I don't necessarily agree with everything they've done, but at least they've done something constructive with their anger. Uh, a, a woman who uh, is, gets this, uh, uh, angry at her husband's constantly drinking, and in spite of what he says, goes off and uh, joins Al-Anon and stays angry enough to keep going to meetings even if he doesn't want her to go, things like that. That's constructive anger. So that, uh, I like the concept of constructive anger. Um, another thing I see that so many times the people I'm working with are they're so focused on the other person that they can't look at themselves. I was talking to a fellow that I sponsored the other day. I was talking about <clears throat> fighting he was having with his neighbor woman and that she wanted them to cut down a tree in the front that didn't need to be cut down and she was always suing people and she was just 
always in trouble with other people and he was really crazy and he was going on and on about how crazy this woman was and what a troublemaker she was and how upset he was and the longer he talked the more I realized how stupid it is for him to keep focusing on her but she's much better in fighting than he is and he'll ever be and the best thing he could do is get into purposeful forgetting and just forget about her and uh, go on with his life because he's never going to get anywhere constantly focused on her which is what I always do I like to focus on my problems uh, I, the, um, I like to drag things on rather than forget them I'm kind of like uh, my little dog my little Lala dog Sabrina uh, she, she hates other dogs uh, and she even hates for another dog to bark in her within her hearing uh, <laughs> if you're walking along and she hears another dog bark she assumes they're barking at her and by God she doesn't stand for that and she gets really angry and she, she will bark at them and then she'll charge against her leash she'll raise up on her hind legs to try and charge against the leash but then we keep on walking and we're well past where the other dog is she doesn't forget it she stays angry I mean motorcycle goes by she's ready to tear off that to them I mean she, stay, she stays angry for a long period of time that's a, and that's what I do long after the thing's gone on I'm still ruminating by it in fact I'm thinking of much better answers then than what to do <laughs> and I, I, I need to cut it off cut it off uh, oh uh, one of the things that uh, I've had happen with a number of people and it's worked well for me with the, the daughter I've got but when you have a when you have somebody that you really want to have them just the program maybe it's a son or daughter a relative a very close friend somebody you really love somebody you really work with you really want them to get it and they can't hear anything you say it, just, it can be so frustrating uh, what I find is that when I'm when I am more interested in somebody's sobriety than they are, it can, can be very frustrating. And I, and I find the harder I work on it, the worse the I get, and the more upset I get. What I have done and helped other people occasionally to do is to become an interested observer. It's kind of like becoming a, a fly on the wall on the ceiling or something and from then on I just watch I just watch what these people or this person is doing I'm interested I may answer questions if they ask but I'm not a participant it's kind of like uh, watching an interesting movie I, I stay in the audience I don't project myself onto the screen I'm not part of the action I'm really interested in what's going to happen. I wonder how this story is going to end. You know? and, I, and I can be very comfortable in that role. And I'm a, nearby if anything comes up that I can do something in that, but I'm not a participant. I'm just, uh, just an interested observer, really interested, but just an observer. And I, I find that very comfortable for me. Um, one of the things that I uh, wanted to mention too was uh, about resentment. Uh, that we in the, in the book it tells us uh, about praying for them and all that stuff and that all helps a lot but um, I haven't taken care of all my resentments and I remember um, 
reading uh, was referred to it uh, Emmett Fox Emmett Fox in the Sermon on the Mount where he is analyzing the uh, Lord's Prayer and Emmett Fox says you should not say the Lord's Prayer past the part where it says uh, forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me don't say that if you're carrying resentments toward anybody because you're telling God to treat you like you're treating that person and that's dumb he goes on in, uh, to a, a considerable detail about how when we resent somebody it's like uh, we're chained spiritually chained to that person it's almost like the prisoner and the, the jailer that you, uh, the jailer is uh, in jail as much as the prisoner is and you can't leave and you're spiritually chained to somebody you don't even like uh, and he goes on the power of forgiveness and so on but the point I wanted to make was that you should read the if you, have, if you don't have any resentments, don't bother. Uh, but he has a, a particular way of handling resentments in that you pray about it over a period of time before you get ready. And you ask God to help you get ready. And when you are finally ready, you sit down and you talk to God about this resentment. And you give the resentment and the person to God and say it's it's yours it's yours now to me it's as if it never happened it's yours it's gone it's over it doesn't belong to me it belongs to you it's as if it never happened and then this is the part I found interesting from then on anytime that resentment comes to your mind you say no I gave that away it never happened you do not allow yourself to think about it because it's gone. And he says you don't have to do that very many times before it ceases to even occur. It really does disappear. And, uh, uh, and, and read it. If you, ever, if, you ever, if you ever have a resentment, check that out. Uh, and it, yeah, I mean, so along the idea of resentment, just a couple of weeks ago I was looking through the uh, Los Angeles Times editorial thing I think it had to do with Easter and Passover and it was talking about forgiveness and it was talking about the battles in uh, Northern Ireland and in uh, Croatia and Serbia and the Middle East and it was talking about people forgiving their enemies and at least two or three times in that editorial it said that the difficulty was the question of whether or not your enemy deserved deserves the gift of forgiveness and I thought God I can't imagine that from such a prestigious source of information they would still feel that you are giving a gift to the person you're forgiving I think as we see it here in the program, when we forgive somebody we have resentment, we're giving a gift to ourselves. We're the ones that benefit. Screw them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad 
you, you agree with me, because I didn't think that had anything to do with that. Anyhow, thing, uh, I guess the only thing I wanted to say was that uh, I just want to stress the fact that we, listen, I think it's, uh, to me it's important for me to be conscious of my emotional state and to uh, and as to what the basis of it is because if, if, it's, if it's somebody else is determining my emotional state that's stupid as far as I'm concerned I should I should take control of that myself and uh, uh, I, I, I must I must I can't blame it on anybody else the uh, there was somebody that was the old Chinese proverb, old Chinese proverb I guess all, all Chinese proverbs are old uh, it said um if you, if you don't control your emotions, your emotions will control you. And, uh, and I think that's the point that I was wanted to make. There's one, one other thought that I, I don't want it to sound uh, goody-goody, um, but I first picked it up in uh, Course in Miracles and then in Jampolsky's uh, Love is Letting Go of Fear and, and some other places. Uh, with the guys, they, people who know about these things say that there's really only two emotions. There's only two emotions, either love or fear. And they claim that all other emotions are variations of either one or the other of those two themes. And, I, and reading that, I realized that my life before the program was a, a fear-based life. I did things because I was afraid not to do them. I failed to do things because I was afraid to do them. Everything I did or didn't do was based on what I, whether I feared or not, what would happen if I did or didn't do that. And in the program, I found it so much more comfortable to have a love-based way of life. And I, that's the choice we have. We can either... To me, that's what the, the whole um, service, love and services, the whole uh, carrying the message of AA. What was uh, read uh, not too long ago that Bill W., one of the two co-founders of AA, said, he wrote, that carrying the message of recovery was our primary aim and the chief reason for our existence. I thought, no, those, those are pretty strong words. That, that our, our primary aim and the chief reason for our existence. And then I thought, when he says our existence, does he mean us as groups or us as individuals or both? But there's nothing more important that we can do than carry the message of recovery. And then the other co-founder of AA says that uh, the whole program Carrying the message can be condensed down to just love and service. Love and service. And I think that's what we do uh, in the program. That's what we do when we come to meetings. That's what we do when we reach out to newcomers or each other. That's, uh, that's what it's all about. It's living a love-based uh, life rather than a fear-based life. Uh, and finally, what I, I, my motto is that if I do a thing for the right motive, and leave the results up to God, it turns out the way it's supposed to. That's how I find out what God's will is. I used to sit and think and pray and ask for God to tell me His will. He never did. Never did. He, 
has never revealed the future to me. The only way I've ever found his clearly is that if I do a thing for the right motive, and love is always the right motive, and this leads the results up to him, it turns out the way he wants it to be, and that's how I find out what his uh, will is. And, uh, and it's so much easier because I'm not responsible for what happens over there. I'm only responsible for my motive in doing what I did. Oh, God, I'm sounding so preachy. Uh, I think it's a good time to quit. Uh, oh, I got one other thing before I quit. A complete change of uh, pace here. Uh, I, uh, some years back, uh, heard about some the people down in Texas that were putting together some uh, papers for how to study the first 164 pages of the book and how to do the steps when you came to them. You have a group and you do it, uh, a step a book study, and it would be a, a step do it, not a step study. And I got hold of the papers, uh, completed them, corrected them, uh, took out the typos, uh, com- uh, finished up some of the steps, made it into a pamphlet, had, uh, but it's basically just the, uh, it's the book. It's the book. You can't sell the book. So I put it out like computer software. Uh, send it out for free. If you like it and use it and want to pay for it, fine. You can make a donation. Uh, and I, uh, it's, uh, I wondered when I did it whether I just throwing my money away and it turned out that alcoholics have uh, wanted it and donated it enough that I've uh, printed 20, 22,000 of them so far. And I brought some along, and they're free. You can pick them up here. And uh, uh, it's better if you don't pick them up just because they're free. But if you do pick them up, uh, try using them. And if you need more, just let me know the addresses on the back, and I'll send them to you. And uh, if you don't have a good rest of the week, and enjoy yourself. Remember, it's your own damn fault. Thank you very much. God likes it when we close with the Lord's Prayer. Grab somebody's hand, it doesn't count otherwise. <laughs> Our Father, Lord in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Hear us this day, our daily bread, and give us our trespasses, and be forgive those who trespass against us. And in the time of temptation, but for the rest of the evil, I am the